Let's uh, turn to Mark chapter 2. We're continuing in our series and our study through the Gospel of Mark. It's the second book in the New Testament. Um, our kind of philosophy about preaching here at City Church is to open up the Bible every week and preach the text. Um, we want to always preach the Bible. And um, we're going to navigate through some tough waters today in this story of Jesus. And that's one reason we preach the Bible here is because I always want you to hear what the text has to say and not just my opinion. Um, if I ever go against the word, you stay with it, um, even when it gets a little um, dicey sometimes in what we're trying to, to unpack together. Um, let's start with this. Um, does anyone in here like to eat? Can I get an amen? amen. All right, um, I'll give you this opportunity. One time to shout out your favorite food, okay? One, two, three. I didn't hear anything. I heard broccoli. Brussels sprouts. Do we have some type of discipline process at City Church just to get the Brussels sprouts, broccoli people out? <laughs> Mine usually involves uh, some type of uh, select piece of beef uh, that we call a steak. Uh, but mealtime is important in our home. Uh, we try to consistently um, have a meal together as a family, particularly when all the uh, older kids are home. Um, and around that meal time, uh, we sit at the table and we try to eat good food and connect and laugh and pray and share memories. And the people that you share table fellowship with often speaks to who's in your inner circle, the people that are the closest to you. Uh, the people that you consistently gather with around your table, if it's family or friends, or the people that often you love the most and want to spend time with. Mark chapter 2 begins this process where Mark records three controversies that are sandwiched. We saw last week in between these two healing miracles, but these three controversies are between Jesus and the religious leaders, and they are regarding his eating habits. His eating habits. Now, these occurrences are not about uh, whether Jesus is eating too much junk food. They're not about whether he is eating dessert before dinner. I'm guessing Jesus could have gotten away with that. That's not a sin, right? Did Mary ever have that conversation with Jesus? Like, you can't eat the brownies until you eat your, your dinner. That wasn't the controversy of Jesus. It wasn't whether um, they should be eating sugar cereal or not. How many of you grew up being allowed to eat sugar cereal? Some of you. How many of you grew up not being allowed to eat sugar cereal? That's me. Um, so I didn't put that stipulation on my kids because I kind of grew up that way. So it's like a free-for-all in my house. What do you want? No generic cereal in this house. Just you choose. This is like one of their benefits uh, because I was only allowed to eat stuff that came in bags and was slightly misspelled. You know what I'm talking about? Like <laughs> Rice Krispies that was spelled weird or like it wasn't Cheerios. It was like circles of oat or whatever. It's like down on the bottom shelf. Um, some of you are with me on that. And so uh, that, wasn't the, the, that wasn't the controversy of Jesus. It was about Jesus disrupting their religious expectations. And what we learn in the practices of Jesus around his table fellowship are consistent with the character and the behavior of God. 
throughout all the redemptive story. So let's jump into the text, and then I'll explain as we go. Chapter 2, verse 13, Jesus, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. So this is a familiar scene. Uh, Mark's narrative is consistent. Jesus is constantly on the move, and once again, he's in Capernaum. He is by the Sea of Galilee. He is teaching, and a crowd of people had surrounded him. This is what we've seen for several weeks now in Mark's gospel. There's no content to what Jesus is teaching outside of he's teaching the gospel, the kingdom of God, repent and believe is what we've learned earlier. Uh, But Mark centers the story of Jesus around action and not just around content. Uh, Verse 14, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. As Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee, he once again, and here's a key word, sees, he sees and calls a new recruit, this time a guy named Levi. Um, other gospels tell us this is probably Matthew who was in the um, inner or the, the twelve disciples. But in Mark's gospel, he is referred to as Levi. Uh, Levi was a tax collector. If you've been here for several weeks, that's happened with the four fishermen earlier, um, James and John and Peter and Andrew. Um, and as with those four fishermen, Jesus intentionally calls and Levi follows. Following in this context is this immediate response uh, with the fishermen. They left their nets behind and follow Jesus. With Levi, he gets up from the tax booth and he follows Jesus. And so there is this immediate response of following Jesus, which implies an abandonment of his way of living. And that's what we have said that the context of Mark teaches us about this idea of repenting and believing, that Jesus is inviting, he's calling specifically uh, people to leave their way of living, leave their kingdom, and to believe, to live under his rule and reign, his kingdom. And so repent and believe, right? To turn from my way of living, my kingdom, what I'm about, in this case, tax collecting, and to live under his rule and reign, to follow him, to be a citizen of his kingdom. And that's what the preaching of the kingdom of God is in Mark's gospel. Now, Levi is a tax collector. Let me tell you about tax collectors. That's important to understand in this story. They are hated. They are despised. Um, I don't know, think IRS agent. Just kidding. I shouldn't say that. They are despised. Um, Anybody ever been audited? I'm holding my hand up because I have. Um, That's why they're hated and despised. If you've been through an audit, you know. Um, But I've I've been audited before uh, by the IRS, which by the way, I'm still waiting on my tax return from last year from the IRS. And I don't get to charge interest. What's wrong with that? So That's why many times, right, tax collectors in that day and people affiliated with um, taxes, I'm still waiting for my money to come back, and I'm not bitter about it. Um, (laughs) It's my money. It's not yours. Why haven't I gotten it yet? Um, Tax collectors. Tax collectors, let me tell you again, context, were Jews. Levi's a Jewish name. They were Jews who collected fees. Don't miss this. They collected fees on behalf of the Roman Empire, And they padded their own pockets in the process. 
Tax collectors were free to take whatever they could get. There was no fixed sum. There was no 15%, 30%. They just took whatever they felt like they could get. And as a result, tax collectors often became very wealthy by taking advantage not just of people, but their own people. That's Matthew. That's Levi. The Jewish writings of the first century, the Mishnah, describe tax collectors making daily rounds, and here's the quote out of the Jewish writings, exacting payment of men with or without their consent. In other words, they could take whatever they want, no matter what you chose to give. Sitting at tax stands with their books open and their pen in hand. That so reminded me of my audit when I read that. Books open, pen in hand. Tax collectors were lumped in uh, with all the notorious sinners of that day. They were lumped in with thieves and murderers and Duke Blue Devil fans, you know, all the <laughs> sinners of that day. I didn't say Auburn fans. Um, I made it personal for me, um, Duke Blue Devil fans. So travelers that were arriving in Capernaum, they would be taxed. They would be taxed by these agents such as Levi, who was in service to Herod Antipas, who was the tetrarch, the Roman tetrarch of this area. And the Roman tax system was complex, it was unfair, and it was built on greed and exploitation. And Levi would be regarded as the lowest of traitors. I mean, think in terms of moles or informants in a Nazi regime. Uh, that, that was, that's Levi. Uh, he would also be considered by the Jewish religion as ceremonially unclean. He could not serve as a witness in court. He was expelled from synagogue life. He was labeled and disgraced by his family. Tax collectors were a constant visual reminder that Israel was living under the dominance and control of Rome. And every time a, a, a Jewish person, an Israelite, would see a tax collector, they would be reminded that we're living under the control of Rome. But this is not our intent. This is not our end game. Levi was more than likely hated by his own countrymen, by his family, his Jewish family, I mean, they named him Levi, his acquaintances, and, don't miss this, the disciples that Jesus called. Even the Romans had no respect for tax collectors because they viewed them as traitors of their own people. They were simply a commodity to accomplish what they wanted to obtain. And Jesus comes along and he calls this traitor to follow him. By the way, he also, we learn later, calls a zealot. A zealot had one life ambition, and that was to overthrow the Roman Empire, even through violence if necessary. So in the inner circle of Jesus' 12 disciples, we have a tax collector who betrayed his own countrymen for Rome, and we have a zealot who despised Rome in every way and was willing to pull out the sword and commit violence against Rome. Tax collector and zealot, they would have been on opposite ends of the political spectrum. They would have hated and loathed one another. 
I mean, think like most radical Fox News watching versus MSNBC watching people. And the same enter circle. And Jesus calls both to follow him, to be a part of the 12. This is not a part of the message, but it does speak to the prominent political divide that sometimes happens in what we call the church. Jesus calls people of all persuasions and all political beliefs to follow him. Tax collectors are welcome in his kingdom. They're welcome into his kingdom. But this story doesn't stop here. It's not just that Jesus invites Levi to follow him, but look what happens next, verse 15. And he reclined at table in his house. Now there's some some discrepancy on his here. Does this mean Levi's house or does this mean the house that Jesus was kind of operating out of as his home? Um, the immediate context seems to indicate that. It was just, Jesus had just been in his home. Remember, they lowered the man, crowds were gathering outside the door. So we're not quite sure who the his is in this text. It's either the home of Levi or the home where Jesus was staying. But either way, he reclined at the table in his house and listen to the language, many, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Many tax collectors and many sinners who followed him. Jesus hangs out with Levi and a gang of scoundrels. I mean, this is an unexpected guest list if you're a religious person. Jesus is hobnobbing with many, many tax collectors and sinners. That label, sinners, that would have included all types of immoral people. I mean, table fellowship in first century Judaism in this culture was a sign of prolonged fellowship and intimacy. It wasn't like a, let's sit at the table and get done as quickly as possible because there's a ball game on or, or there's a show we want to watch or we're eating dinner on the couch watching something. That wasn't table fellowship in this culture. Table fellowship in this culture was extended hours, hanging out together, reclining, sharing a meal together, getting to know each other. That was what we're talking about in this context, that Jesus is spending this type of intimate, prolonged fellowship, table time with sinners and tax collectors. Let me back up to what I said at the beginning. Who you eat with is an indicator of who you believe is acceptable and who is not. And you can just multiply that by 100 in the culture in which Jesus is living. And we'll see it caused quite a controversy, didn't it? Jesus redefines who is deserving and who is undeserving. He is hanging out with this group of riffraff. And honestly, it would have been more offensive for Jesus to be doing this than it was his direct contact with a leper when he reached out and touched the leper, which was totally forbidden. This would have been more controversial than Jesus touching someone who had leprosy, and the religious elite take notice, verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw, there's our word again, Jesus sees Levi and calls Levi. What do the religious leaders see when they 
saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, he said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Again, they see Jesus eating with these notorious renegades, and they question the disciples about it. After all, they can't get too close, right? they got to pull the disciples out like, why is Jesus eating with them? Their approach is vastly different than the approach of Jesus. Their approach, they approach sin from the preventative side. In order to maintain their religious purity, they exclude sinners. They separate from sinners in hopes that the sinners will somehow change their ways and join them in this life of very careful law observation and their added rituals. That was their approach. Stay away and hope that they sign up, that they adopt our way of living. Interesting point here. Jesus and the Pharisees want sinners to repent and believe, but there is a fundamental difference in how they approach it. One approaches from a model of complete exclusion. Jesus approaches it from a model of bridge building. The Pharisees look down on sinners. Jesus looks for sinners. When he sees Matthew, he calls him. When they see what Jesus is doing, they exclude. Why would he do this? Jesus hears their opposition, and he responds with a well-known maxim or kind of this proverb in his day, verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says doctors are for sick people, not those who are well. I came, Jesus says, not to call the righteous, but sinners. Here's the irony of what Jesus is saying. The Pharisees view themselves as righteous. They failed to see themselves as sinners. So in Jesus' little maxim here, the Pharisees are those outside the kingdom. Those who view themselves as righteous and can't see themselves as sinners are excluded from the kingdom. The sinners are included because they see themselves as sinners in need of, right, repentance and belief. In Mark's previous story, we saw last week, they lowered the man before Jesus in an attempt to be healed. Remember what Jesus does when they lower him? He doesn't say you're healed. He says, my son, your sins are forgiven you. Last week, Jesus forgives sins. Here, he engages with and forgives sinners. Jesus proclaims the good news of forgiveness where it is needed in order to create this new community that is defined by his forgiveness. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus calls people to follow him who are considered outsiders by the religious. He accepts the unacceptable. By the way, there's no evidence in the text here that Jesus requires any kind of moral adjustments or behavior or any preconditions for his love and acceptance. He loves them as they are, sinners. He initiates fellowship with people that were considered unclean by the religious. 
Jesus embodies the scandal of grace. The scandal of grace that is found throughout the redemptive story. That God sets his affection on the undeserving. That he loves the unlovely. That he calls the unexpected. That he rescues renegades and outcasts and ragamuffins, to borrow from Brendan Manning. He, he rescues sinners. So here's a question I have when I read this story. I mean, this has been like such a convicting study for me this week. Why in the Gospels are those who would have little or nothing to do with religion, why are they so drawn to Jesus? Why are these people who would have nothing to do with religion, who would have little to do with religion, and the religious would have nothing to do with them, why are they so magnetically drawn to Jesus? Why are the unholy so drawn to the Holy One? Why are the unclean so drawn to the pure one? Why are sinners so drawn to the sinless one? That Jesus had this magnetic power to love and engage sinners in a way that they were drawn to him. They were not turned away from him. Jesus is the sinless one walking the earth completely holy, completely pure, and the most sinful are drawn to him, not turned away from him. They engage in intimate fellowship with him. So a, a few important reminders we learn from Jesus here. We're reminded in this text that sinners do not need to do anything to become recipients of God's love. They do not have to stop doing these things and start doing these things to come to Jesus. Jesus meets them right where they are. He meets them right where they are. He doesn't come up with a list of like, I need you guys to, 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 you know, I need you guys to stop doing all these things and start doing these things, stop behaving like this, stop drinking this and dressing like this and smoking this. Like, no list. Jesus meets them right where they are. There's no do these things and do not do these things involved. There's no behavior adjustments at all. When Jesus meets people right where they are, that's the gospel. Jesus meets us right where we are in life. I say this all the time. Are you a sinner? If you're a sinner, you qualify. He calls and you respond as a sinner. So many trying to figure it out. And I'll stop doing this. And I'll start doing this. And I'll, stop, I'll start this and then I can come to Christ. It's like, no, he meets you right where he is, right where you are. He comes to us right there, calls us at the tax booth. Jesus also reminds us in this text, he is no respecter of persons. Jesus rejects the entire religious system of his day, which was ranking and classifying people according to their moral decisions and behavior. So let's just be honest with each other, like, who is on our worst of sinners list? Who makes our list? People that do what make our list? Whoever makes that list, those are the ones that Jesus dined with. That's who he hung out with. I don't know, perhaps we should too. Jesus also reminds us in this text, this is so important, 
He does not regard his holiness as something that needs to be safeguarded by staying away from sinners, but his holiness is actually what draws him to the sinner. He is holy, and because he is holy, he understands the horror of sin more deeply than us. He died for it. We talked about this some in our small groups on Wednesday night. Because he is holy, he understands the horror of sin more fully and deeply than us. He bore that sin on a cross, and yet his holiness does not keep him isolated and removed, but it compels him to rescue sinners from the horrors of sin. And these are two completely different religious outlooks in this text. And man, I'm telling you, I struggled with that this week. Because we read of the Pharisees, the ones that draw these strict moral boundaries. They categorize people and label people and they exclude people based on their own terms and conditions. And then there's this way of Jesus who throws open the door and dines with sinners and welcomes everyone. Which, by the way, is the scene that we find at the end of the book. At the final feast, right? At the marriage supper of the Lamb. What we find is people from all over, all types of people from all over the world gathering for table fellowship at the end. This is just a glimpse of what's going to happen. Let's be honest. I'm talking to me. We tend to operate far more from the outlook of the Pharisees than we do from the outlook of Jesus. We tend to. We are far more prone to draw boundaries. We are far more prone to categorize people, to exclude certain types of sinners than we are to love them with the love of Jesus. I don't want to lose sight of the fact that grace is absolutely scandalous. And what makes grace so scandalous is to whom it is extended, the undeserving. I've said it before and I'll reiterate it again. Like if grace does not offend you on occasion, you haven't really fully grasped your need for it. If there are not times in my life where I think, why would that person be included? Or why would grace be extended to that person? Or those sinners, like if, if grace does not just knock you in the mouth at times for who it is extended to, that we haven't fully grasped our need for it. It is absolutely scandalous in every way. We are reminded in this story, if you want to, if you want to hear one sentence I say, hear this one. We are reminded in this story We cannot win people to Jesus with whom we are not willing to sit down and eat. To be their friends, to enjoy their company. Our call is to bring Jesus to people, not just people to Jesus. To love them, to engage them as Jesus did. Are sinners drawn to me because of how I treat them, how I love them, how I care about what's going on in their lives? 
Not just because they're some evangelism project for me. Because I actually care about them. I care about what's going on in their life. I care about their kids. I care about their family. I care about their hurts and their pains and their needs and their wants. Are they drawn to me because they know I love and care about them? Not just I'm the next person on their list that they want to talk about church to. Maybe the difference, as we see in this text, is how we view people, how we see people, a difference in vision. Jesus sees Levi as a person in need of rescue. And so here's how he responds to that. He goes to him, he walks among them, he calls them, he sits with them, he eats with them. Now, we have to ask ourselves, if Jesus eats with sinners and tax collectors, why do we want nothing to do with them? Maybe we've lost sight of the fact that we too are notorious sinners in need of grace. And that he came to rescue us. He came to us and rescued us. That's why I read the words of Paul at the beginning. Don't lose sight that I am the sinner. First and foremost, I am a sinner in need of Jesus. So here, here's where my mind went this week. It was again, I, I wrestled through this. Like, I wonder if Jesus were around today and hanging out with a group of people that we love to label sinners, who would they be? Like, that's the people he's hanging out with. You understand that, right? So, so let's talk about it. Who would it be? Addicts? Prostitutes? Troublemakers? LBGTQ activists, let's be real, right? We love our labels. Pro-choice people, liberals, racists, drunks, adulterers, perverts, thieves. I mean, let's honest, right? These are the people that make our list. And it's the people that Jesus is dining with in the text. You know, many tax collectors and sinners. I mean, let's not pretend if Jesus were alive today that it would be any different. These are the people Jesus will be rubbing shoulders with and hanging out with and loving and getting to know them and understanding their story and caring about them. And here's the question I had to ask, Devin, would I be at the table eating and enjoying the company of those I label sinners or would I be on the outside looking in the window questioning why is the doctor hanging out with the sick people? And I'm afraid of the answer. I'm afraid of it for me. Before we answer too quickly, what does our daily practices reveal? What does how we live life reveal? My prayer is I have opened up Mark's gospel every week to study and prepare for preaching and teaching to you has been God, help me to see Jesus in this text for who he is. Not for like what I want him to be, 
See, I, th- I think that we all are guilty of defining Jesus in a way that makes us comfortable. And we have defined Jesus in a way that looks different than the New Testament Jesus. We've defined Jesus in a way that allows us to stay in our comfort zone, that allows us to watch the news from the perspective that we watch the news, and we've somehow defined Jesus in a way that if he were around, that he would watch the news channels I watch, that he would prefer the company that I prefer, that he would believe the doctrine that I believe, that he would prefer the style of church that I prefer, that he would prefer to eat and drink and hang out and fellowship with the people that I prefer to eat and drink and fellowship with, and we have made Jesus look a lot like us, and then I open up the Bible, and the Jesus that I read about makes me entirely uncomfortable. Like, is the Jesus in my mind the Jesus of Mark 2? Or am I standing on the outside of the house looking through the window saying, why is he hanging out with that person? That makes me really uncomfortable. Did you see the placard that that person had at the, the pride parade last week? Did you see that person's behavior last week? Have you heard the rumors about how that person's behaving? I'm on the outside looking in. And Jesus rocks my world in Mark 2. It's just a few verses. But how powerful are they to help us really seek to understand the Savior that we claim to serve and follow probably, if we're being honest, looks a lot different than we've made him. So let me just bring this full circle back to the call of Levi, the tax collector, the sinner. Obviously, if you know our family, um, you know that the name Levi has some significance for us. <laughs> My youngest son is named Levi. Um, so this reminded me um, when I was reading through this text of a blog that I wrote a number of years ago when we were naming Levi and decided on his name, which has been, whatever, six years ago now. I used to write a lot more frequently than I do now. But I wrote back then um, these words that I think are appropriate for this message. And this was after we had announced that Levi was going to be born in September. And that we had decided on his name. You guys know my go-to if I get an emotional to drink water, right? Not all the time, but sometimes. Levi is the name of Jacob and Leah's third son in the Old Testament. Uh, These are the words I had written. I identify closely with the story of Jacob as he wrestled constantly with the struggle between his own human identity and the man that God created and called him to be. His ultimate identity I was determined I was not going to cry. I read these words. Um, His ultimate identity was not found in his own cunning ways to gain um, notoriety, but in the God 
who saves and redeems sinners. Uh, Jacob is one of my favorite Old Testament characters. Also, Jacob and his wife Leah met under unusual circumstances generated by wrong choices that God used to create a lasting a lasting bond in spite of the choices that landed them there. Uh, his story is a story that resonates deeply with Ashley and I. Um, Levi is also the priestly tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jacob named his 12 sons, one of them Levi. Um, Levi is the priestly tribe. Uh, Levi is the priestly tribe of the 12 tribes. Our Levi comes from a heritage of people that have been set aside for God's service. And so it is fitting. And then in the New Testament, Levi is the name of the tax collector that Jesus called. He also went by the name Matthew. And if you know the story of Matthew, you know it is one of scandalous grace. The tax collectors were some of the most despised and dishonest people in the Roman Empire. And yet Jesus stops specifically at the booth of Levi, the tax collector, and invites him to become one of his followers. The grace of Jesus crossed boundaries that no religious person in his day would have even approached. He pursued sinners like Levi. When Matthew followed Jesus, one of the first things he did was to invite Jesus to a party for his friends and acquaintances who were all labeled sinners. The religious were infuriated that Jesus would attend such an event and hang out with such shady people. They even labeled Jesus a friend of sinners, a title that he embraced and affirmed. Jesus, or Levi, stands as an amazing testimony of God's radical grace and how he crosses boundaries that we tend to frown upon to extend his message of forgiveness and love. Ashley and I have experienced this grace in a real and lasting way, and we want the name of our son to reflect that reality. The name Levi means to be joined in harmony. Ashley and I have been joined to Jesus and each other by grace, and Levi is a product of our story of redemption and healing and we want his name to echo. The radical grace of our Jesus. His middle name is Lockie. Some of you may not know that. Um, you read that correctly. His middle name will be Lockie. Uh, my grandfather, Papal Hud, was named Lockie Linu Hudson. While Lockie is an unusual name, uh, we want Levi to be named after my papa, his great-grandfather. Um, Pap Hud was a man whose life was forever changed by the gospel. For his first 40 years, his life was marked by vile living, alcohol abuse, fighting, and depravity. And then he encountered the grace of Jesus and his life was forever changed. The second half of my papa's life was marked by gentleness and delight and humor and grace and a love for Jesus and his family. I never knew the old papa. I only knew the papa that was defined by grace. He was not perfect. His faith was raw. And that's one of the things I loved the most about him. There was no facade. He never got, he never forgot where he came from and who he was in Jesus. Prior to the conversion of my dad and then my grandfather, who God saved after one of dad's first sermons, there's, real, there's no real history of faith in our family. In other words, I am just one generation removed 
from a family tree marked by scandalous living. My papaw serves as a reminder of how redeeming grace transforms not just an individual life, but generations to come. Papud has been gone for several years now. I still miss him. He and I were close. I spent two of my high school summers living and working with him. I will never forget those times. It was in those day-to-day moments where I saw his faith lived out in a real way. He was not a pastor, not a preacher, not a teacher, not a deacon. He was just a man who loved people that people loved and whose life was marked by grace. And it is with great honor that we name our son after him. We love you, Levi, Lockie Hudson. And we hope your life is marked by the same grace that has transformed our lives. What's in a name? A story that is marked by his grace.